0: Welcome to Poet in Bangkok. I'm Donald Quist.
1: And I'm Colin Chaney. Every episode, we hear the stories of librarians, party organizers, writers, and performers.
0: And Colin and I try to piece together a bigger story about making art in Thailand during a time of alien transmissions, UFOs crashing to Earth, strange Martian flowers, and the danger facing the crew of the Harbinger Two on Mars. Today's podcast is a little different. Colin is currently in Hanoi, Vietnam, where he chatted with Burmese poet and visual artist, Meng Day. In their interview, you'll hear Meng talk about how his early exposure to traditional Burmese songs and poems in school sparked a passion for writing. How, despite extreme military censorship, he sought out American and British literature that excited him, and how he found his own creative voice he recalls the violent political clashes he saw while residing in Bangkok in the earlier half of the decade, and how he felt a haunting sense of familiarity, having witnessed brutal suppressions of uprisings growing up in a Yangon suburb. Mong reflects on the difficulty many immigrants face in Thailand and personal instances of discrimination, and comments on the exciting, socially engaging art currently coming out of Myanmar. But before we get into all that, uh, Colin, you should probably explain to our listeners what you're doing in Vietnam. What are you doing there? Yeah. So,
1: yeah, I'm, uh, here, in, I'm here in Hanoi, Vietnam, on the second floor of this little hotel. I'm not sure if you can... I think, I think I've got this pretty well shrouded, uh, but you might be able to hear some, some street noise uh, out there on a little uh, street in the old part of the city. Mong Day is probably asleep... Uh, upstairs on the fourth floor, unless he's still uh, banging around the city uh, with with other uh, with other poets and writers. Yeah, I, so I came here for a literary festival that was organized by a small uh, group of uh, Vietnamese writers and uh, and some American writers uh, who run a, a press called Ajar, a gathering of uh, Vietnamese huh. uh, Vietnamese poets and poets from uh, Burma, Thailand malaysia singapore and there were supposed to be some uh, poets coming from china but there is also a poet uh, a couple poets here from uh, hong kong as well so uh yeah it's been i'm I'm really really excited to be here and it's been a really exciting couple of days flying out tomorrow after one uh, last event
0: you're there for the festival but i'm pretty sure there's another reason why you went
1: yeah to vietnam yeah so okay let me see if i can if i can since i i lost the urge to write poems when i went on antidepressants um a couple years ago yeah this was about two and a half years ago uh since before since before the coup i've been trying to write i've been trying to write prose to make some sort of sense of 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 losing my depression and losing uh, my poems in the process i kept finding myself returning to this metaphor of alien possession as I was writing about the uh, experience of depression and it turns out like science fiction stories are provide a really rich array of ways to consider the experience of being taken over by some dark thing and being changed by something either within or without and i want to just be clear that hmm. this was this was before the murdered by the sky transmission was leaked in september 2015 last year 15 um, yeah but the but the harbinger 1 had vanished, and, and Mars was had been being terraformed for years, obviously. And so, sure, there was, like, this otherworldly shit that was on my mind, no doubt, when I was starting to write about this, but when the transmission was received, and when the whales appeared, I started feeling this queer anxiety again, this sort of, this sense that I'd sometimes have when I was depressed, this kind of magical thinking that the world was somehow confirming my imagination. That, like, the things that were in my head were manifesting out of the world. Yeah. And I didn't mention this during last season because honestly, I didn't want to perpetuate this idea with myself of like magical thinking and say like, Hey, we're probably all just (laughs) living in through like some like really
2: queer metaphor (laughs)
1: for my anxiety and depression here. So like, don't worry about those giant UFOs coming toward the earth. But when the whales broke up in the atmosphere, it was a little like my delusions, like that darkness and that like seeking anxiety also broke up against the upper atmosphere, I mean that those that lingering, those lingering delusions, so then, with the news of the investigations at each of the crash sites and the reports of the Martian plants, like and how like they're different at each site and sometimes flowering and sometimes not, I again found myself working hard to ignore the feeling that the world was rejigging itself to be in, in sync with my imagination, and maybe I guess maybe that's why I brought home the Bachrach from the market. Um, oh yeah. Like if I actually have some of the actual Martian vine growing on my balcony next to this volunteer papaya my daughter and I planted next to some like ordinary old bamboo, then that I'd have to just face that no, this is not my imagination. It's just like a damn plant. Like it's a Martian plant, but what? hey, it's just it's a real plant. So anyway, all of that to say, in July, I got an email from a woman in Saigon, um, in Ho Chi Minh City, mm-hmm. who'd been listening to the podcast and she's a vietnamese oh, poet cool. and and started listening t- to the podcast cuz she was somebody recommended it to her because of this question we were digging into about writing under under censorship which is obviously yeah. a concern in in vietnam uh though it seems to play out in in very different ways than it does um here in thailand um or it as as we'll hear in the interview with mong day uh in burma so she'd seen my name on a list of guests at this poetry festival in Hanoi uh, that I'm at. And, and she sent me an email wondering if we could meet up. And I said, and I said, yeah, sure. Um, so the night I arrived a few days ago, I met up with our hosts and, and went out to dinner we had this amazing like glass o- noodle and eel meal out on the street with a bunch of Vietnamese poets and a American poet named James Shea and a uh, Hong Kong Chinese poet uh, named uh, Temiho Lai Ming. And mm. they did this, this, pre-game reading uh, at this really cool cafe down this like little alley um, and then sit down this other alley and the books were lining the walls and Tammy read some poems and James read some poems and they talked a little bit about their work and Tammy also talked a a bunch about the the censorship faced by mainland Chinese and Hong Kong Chinese writers. She also talked about the the recent disappearances of of bookshop owners uh, in Hong Kong, from Hong- in Hong Kong, and one of those uh, wow. bookshop owners, I, I I learned from her, and I guess I'd heard it before, um, but it, it slipped away from me. Had actually actually disappeared while he was here in Thailand. And this yes. is this is a couple of months ago, um, I, I think, or a year ago, and. This is just reminding me that if, there's yeah. been a bunch of stuff in the news about uh, Joshua Wong getting detained in Thailand and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah,
0: since he's been gone, a 19-year-old activist named Joshua Wong was detained in Thailand. He was coming from Hong Kong to speak at a event commemorating the Thammasat massacre that occurred on in October. Uh, October 6th yeah today uh, 40 years ago so he was going to speak at this event um, but he never made it to the event because he was detained by the immigration services so he's okay now he was put on a plane back to Hong Kong and he said uh, Thai authorities did not give him reason for refusing him entry and had showed him a document citing a security law. And then one officer had mentioned to him that they just said the word blacklist. Um, and this right. this is according to Joshua Wong. Um, Joshua Wong is a member of the Umbrella Movement that right. occurred in Hong Kong. And he's he's been very vocal in, <laughs> in speaking about just... Uh, the rights of young people and uh, human rights throughout Asia. He actually was denied entry into Malaysia in 2015. Oh really? Um, yeah, he was supposed to be giving talks on democracy in China. Um, so you mm. might see you might see some common common things popping up um, and but yeah that's what's been going on here man um so yeah i thought of that when you said you were talking to a hong kong artist yeah. so after that event um
1: two nights ago i was hanging out with mong day the burmese poet who who uh, I, I then later interviewed for the podcast and we were milling around in the alley waiting for someone to decide if we we're going to go get a drink uh, where we're going to go get a drink and this vietnamese woman approached me and introduced herself and this was and i'm going to call her hope um, and this is the woman. That e- emailed okay. me. Uh, yeah, that's not, that's not her name. Yeah. She knew the other writers there, like including the hosts and, and we all went out together and we, and it had just, it was still raining, I guess. And we sort of wandered around. We finally found this place that, that where we could sit on the street and sort of how you, one of the ways in which you hang out and have, have beers on the street is you just sit in these little, little plastic stools under an awning and uh, it finished raining. And so as we, as we sat there drinking, drinking beer, on ice or out of a bottle, as I insisted to, even though it was warm. She told me about how, like, she'd actually been invited to read uh, at the at the festival, but she'd been arrested uh, a number of years ago for reading poems that had been deemed subversive. Mm. Um, she still published poems under a number of pseudonyms, and I gather this is, like, a relatively common practice among Vietnamese poets, because a number of the Vietnamese poets I met, published under pseudonyms, um, and she didn't want to, mm. to risk reading in public. So we said mm. there drinking beer and eating snails, and I was feeling socially awkward and not sure how to talk to all these poets because it's been so long since I actually was surrounded by poets or really felt like I could identify as a poet because I haven't written poems <laughs> in so long. It's sort of weird to attend a poetry <laughs> festival as an invited poet and... Have an absence of poet- poetry inside of you. There was this uh, this really famous uh, Vietnamese poet um, named Li Doi, and a uh, American translator. And shh, this American translator, I'm sorry, I'm just sort of overwhelmed by all of like the details of like what's been happening to me here. So I apologize for, for going on. But there's this yeah. American translator oh, it's, it's okay. who I think this is relevant. This is relevant to you. So there's this American translator who is there with her boyfriend, and who a Vietnamese man. Who actually is still suffering from the Martian aphasia, yeah, and he he just sort of sat there in the corner and just and just and drank and didn't speak all night, and his girlfriend was super cheerful and and turned to him and like talked to him and he smiled a little bit, but he didn't say he didn't say anything, not that I heard I mean, I don't know, I guess it reminded me of the way like I somehow like try to be cheerful for people when I was depressed. Not that he's depressed, he has the Martian aphasia, but maybe yeah. he's depressed because he has the Martian aphasia. But your, your aphasia never got that severe, right, Donald? Like, you never got to the point where you... No, no. You just, like, stopped talking because otherwise you would just knew you would be blathering on, right?
0: No, it never got that severe. Yeah. Um, Thankfully.
1: Yeah, and you were able to get help. I mean, like... I mean, yeah. like, but these, like, but these bad cases, I mean, they must be so hard to live with, like, to watch your loved one, like, get lost until long, no longer be able to express themselves. And I just think it's also just so strange how each culture seems to deal with the Martian aphasia differently, like, the clinics and the therapy and mm-hmm. the Obamacare coverage in the U.S. and, like, how they keep, in Thailand, like, it seems like they mostly keep the victims at home, like, the disabled out of shame. And in yes. Vietnam, it just yeah. seems like it's this elective silence, um... This or maybe, like, it's socially pressured silence. I'm not sure. Um, I guess he, like, didn't want to be seen as crazy, which I totally understand. Anyway, so I sure. felt, I felt like, weirdly nervous around Hope. And for a while, I talked with Mong Day and this Stanford undergraduate who was stressing out about her thesis project. And, and I you know, wanted me to stop bugging her about it. But then I had enough beer to, like, talk about... Uh, talk with Hope about what she wanted to talk about. So Hope told me that the reason she wanted to talk was that she's been doing translations from the murdered by the sky signals that the Trotza Institute had posted online. Like those, you know, you know, those hours and hours of transmissions <laughs> from the approaching whales. And then like we've, yeah. you know, we've, we've played some of them on the, on the podcast. And so I said, I said, translations. And she, she said, yeah, like she knew that it sounded really strange. And but when she listened to the tr- transmissions, which we all know, like this it's sort of this queer, almost music, she she said that she understood what they were saying, and I said, like a universal translator. What? Yeah, like I said, like like a universal translator, like on Star Trek. And she says, <laughs> I don't. She says, I don't know. I don't. I don't like science fiction, which I thought was very funny. And then she yeah, said, she, and then so anyway, she like pulled pulled these papers out of her purse and showed me and they were in vietnamese they were handwritten in vietnamese and on the like on the fly she did these like instant translations from that she had done from the alien into vietnamese and then she was translating into english and they sounded like i don't um i don't know like they sounded like surrealist poetry i guess is the only way to say like moons and lizards and blood and and she acknowledged that some of them really just sounded like nonsense but she wanted but she wanted to share them with someone she hadn't actually shown them to anybody Whoa. in Vietnam, and I guess she felt like our all of like all of our Mars chatter on the podcast uh, made us made her feel like like I was someone who might be like open to this. Which I mean, I, I guess it was like I was, I'm really touched by, it. especially as somebody who like I actually I struggle connecting with people, and I struggle mm-hmm. like finding emotional like intimacy in in friendships. And so the idea that this stranger had. Listened to our podcast, you know, and felt like I was somebody that she could, you know, um, to you know share this with. Like that, you know, that meant a lot to me. So anyway, like she didn't, I guess, like she just didn't want to feel crazy, and she wanted to, she didn't want to feel like she was the only one who heard something in the in the signal. And she said she she said she wondered sometimes if she suffered from the aphasia, though her husband and her friends told her that no, like she spoke she spoke totally normally and she said, am I speaking? Like at one point she yeah. said like, like, am I speaking normally? <laughs> and I said, yes. And her English was really good, but it got me thinking about like, I, I mean, know- but
0: that's what, that's, that's what it's like. You're not sure. Like it's, it's really that unnerving. You're never sure if what you're saying sounds crazy. Right.
1: No, I so, remember, you, I remember yeah. you saying that in like those interactions where, I mean, even like when we were recording the podcast, remember like sometimes you would, yeah you would slip into it. This is before you got, you got help for it. Like you'd slip into it and then, you yeah uh, you know, I would, start laughing because I was a mean, a mean friend. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I'm sitting out on the street and this woman is telling me that she's been translating alien signals into poetry. And yeah. I'm a little drunk, you know, I've had a couple of beers, but you know, I'm in the spirit of being at a poetry festival here in Hanoi and I'm a little overwhelmed listening to this woman say that she's translating alien signals into more poetry than I'm writing. (laughs) Um, But I felt like, I honestly felt like I didn't respond well to her. Like I was really fascinated Mm -hmm. and I said so. And there was like, there was like a real intimacy in the conversation and and she was reaching out with this very private thing. So I felt like, Again, this terrible sensation of not being able to connect with people. And I found myself pushing the conversation to more neutral ground, asking her about <laughs> what she did in Saigon, her thoughts on the aftermath of the American War. I just felt uncomfortable with what our discussion was opening up. And I felt I felt her disappointment. And I, I didn't know how to respond to that either. So at the festival reading at the bar this morning she gave me some of these english translations yeah and she'd written Hmm. across the top flowers and we drank (laughs) super strong vietnamese coffee and browsed the books for sale and i asked her why she thought that these translations were true and she said it was and i love this and she said it was like writing a poem you feel it and when you feel when it's right, and you just need to put it down, what you hear, what you feel, even if no one else knows what to do with you and your poem. <laughs> um, wow, I've been really going on here. So I guess I'm just gonna end by saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write hope, and ask her if we can post some of these transcriptions or translations yeah. from the alien from the Martian. I doubt it, but I guess I want to see if anyone else out there has heard anything similar. Though I admit, I'm a little nervous about carrying these documents through Vietnamese customs <laughs> tomorrow. Exactly. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll just take some photos of them and there you go. then toss the originals in the trash. I'm not sure what it'd mean to get caught with translations from translations from the language of the flowers currently escaping the crash sites uh but in the real world not in some delusion of my surely no longer depressed and anxious brain there must be some consequence to that Hmm. so uh (laughs) so yeah in the midst of all that i interviewed mom day
0: you're becoming uh, quite the scoff law. You, you, you're you talking about uh, poems that should not exist. Um, um, you've got flowers that should not be in your possession. That, again, uh, yeah, the government says does not exist. Um, <laughs> you're becoming... Uh, yeah. And maybe it's... it's yeah, it, it might be both of us. Because seeing what you've been up to, it reminds... There's been stuff going on. Uh, with me as well. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: I've gone on for way too long. Talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. What's going on?
0: I don't know if you, I, I said this in passing during the last episode, but um, so when I went to go vis- visit one of the crash sites, I met an Australian guy. Uh, do you remember me mentioning that? Yeah, yeah. I met, I met this Australian guy. We he he was seemed pretty nice. We exchanged emails, and I thought this guy will never. I'll, I'll never hear from him again. It's just a pleasant thing people do uh, when they've shared a moment together. But he emails me. Uh, I'm going to call him Joe. Uh, Joe emailed me, said he looked into me. He's been he caught up on the podcast. Um, and then Joe proceeded to tell me that Joe used to work with the International Space Exploratory Coordination Group. <laughs> he he freaking worked of course for he did. ISIC. And I thought, okay, you're you're kidding me. But then he goes on in our correspondence to tell me that he worked closely with Dr. Pym, um, no, who, who is currently, you know, hiding out in an embassy and <laughs> That he worked with Dr. Wells Clark, who is currently Are on freaking Mars. So oh, I'm wow. I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out yeah. a little bit because um, you're like I,
1: I, you're like oh, yeah. I'm inside Colin's delusional brain.
0: Exactly. There's no way. <laughs> like, <laughs> Col- like I have fallen into Colin's fantasy. Um, <laughs> we talk about these things, but they they seem they seem so far away. Isaac is it, it's just it doesn't seem like something you encounter on in your daily life. Right. And so here I am. Mars. I got this Mars is still Mars. Mars is is still Mars. But now here I am with this new friend and he's telling me things and I, I don't, I don't know why he's telling me them. And I ask him, can I share this stuff? And he doesn't give me a straight answer. What's what's and So, Oh, See, I feel weird even. Uh, okay, I, it must not be super top secret because he. Well, we'll cut it out. We'll cut uh, it out if it's uh, okay. If, yeah. If the okay, NSA so,
1: breaks into my computer exactly. and tells me that it's off limits, because they're arresting okay, a lot of um, people these days.
0: Right. Right. So as you know, um, you know, Isaac released a statement saying they were suspending future missions to Mars indefinitely mm-hmm. after they found Shep um, and weren't able to locate anyone else from Harbinger 1. Right. And then just recently, I was reading in The Guardian, uh, Drew Sutton published this report from Dr. Pym saying she experienced a hacking at the embassy. So these, th- this is all public knowledge.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Joe is confirming these things. He's giving validation. Oh. He, he sent me something. Colin? He, he sent me something he sent me video he sent me of a video he's oh god he sent me a video of Shep. what um that he claims he got from dr wells clark now when i first watched the video i thought okay maybe maybe this could be faked but it it looked too real um what did it look like? So
1: this in, is so yeah. this is
0: so surreal. But go on. Right. So what did it look video, like? Uh, it, it, lo- it looks like Shep. It looks like Shep um, in one of the habitat pods on Mars, and he is talking to Dr. Wells Clark, who is filming this, and he's to so her voice babbling is on the. It's yeah, on the her recording. voice. And I was thinking, okay, you might be able to fake a person with cgi but the voices i just don't see how he could have and why would he would go through the effort of faking this just to just to troll some guy with a podcast <laughs> <But> by, <laughs> why why go through the effort um yeah we're
1: we're, we're a, pretty a big, big deal,
0: deal right so in the in the in the in the freaking video uh shep is babbling he's babbling wildly and it sounds just like the Martian aphasia that we're hearing here on Earth. When I look at that video, it oh, sounds—it sounds and looks like iPhone footage uh, that my wife <laughs> captured of stuff I was doing just a few months ago. And it—it's so scary. Oh, it's, it's so weird. Yeah. Um, I just don't understand it, wow, and I don't man. know what I'm supposed to do with this. He gave it to me. He just said he wanted me to have it. I've been trying to email him back. Why did he give this to me? What does he want me to do with this? He will not respond. I just have no idea what I'm supposed to do with this. And now I've spoken about it on this podcast. Who knows? We need to, who's we gonna need to stop talking about
1: it. stuff like this on the podcast. We
0: we We probably need to. I just don't know. <laughs> What the, the hell is going on? Like what am I supposed to do with this? Why does he sound like me? Why does he sound like people here on earth? It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. So I'm I'm kind of freaking out. I'm kind yeah. of freaking out. So I don't but yeah. And then we got these vines, these these invaders, the buckrock are they're starting to pop up in Bangkok. They're cracking roads. I saw that. It's I'm not, not they're not on my the sides of buildings. I mean they're on yeah,
1: my balcony. Yeah.
0: I, I thought I you were gonna get rid of those.
1: Oh yeah, no, I, I totally <laughs> got rid of it. Yeah, I totally uh-huh. burned it. I totally threw it in the canal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not on my balcony. It's not growing Ugh. beautiful, Colin. beautiful Colin. flowers. Maybe when we record the next interview, maybe <laughs> uh maybe you can you can show me. Because I don't believe okay.
0: you. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll show you. I mean, I, you believe, I believe it. I believe it. I'm not gonna. You. I'm not gonna email it to you. No, no way. You're not gonna but email. I will. Yeah. I will show it to you. Yeah. Yeah, I will show okay. it to you. Okay. Oh,
1: um, That's amazing, man.
0: Jesus. This is. Yeah. This is, things this, are getting. This, this is. They're getting strange wild. Strange In the in the midst of all this, um, uh, I was listening to the interview you sent me, between you and Hmong. uh, and just thinking about the massacre and thinking about the risk artists take to do what they do here in Thailand. And also thinking back to our previous conversation in the, in the last episode about happiness and how you can be happy here, or if it's possible for me to yeah. be happy here. Yeah. You're the, the talk with mom gave me a lot to think about. It gave me a lot to think about.
1: Yeah. Why don't we go to the interview? So I met Mong Day when he was living here in Bangkok a number of years ago. Uh, we were connected by a uh, mutual poetry acquaintance, uh, a poet and editor in England, actually. And mm. I remember meeting up for, for dinner, and I was really nervous because, <laughs> you know, poets are uh, few and far between here in Bangkok and I felt like I was going on a date even though I was bringing my (laughs) wife with me we met up and it became clear very quickly that he was remains an amazing articulate sensitive well read poet we went on to, to hang out a lot and trade poems while he was here in Bangkok and then he moved back to Burma he happened to also be invited to this uh, literary conference here in Hanoi, so uh, I was really glad that I could uh, interview him. And so without further ado, here's our interview with Mong Day.) <laughs> So have you
2: have you ever been to Hanoi before, or is this your is this your first time? This is my second time. I came here in 2010. I had an art exhibition here, a group of exhibitions uh, representing contemporary art from Myanmar. Uh Also in this part of the town. So you were exhibiting some of your, you remember, your visual art. I mean, I I was just playing with the identities that I find in myself. Uh, for instance, one work consists of uh, like a dozen photos. So. That would be a photo of a wedding and an ID card and, and two dogs copulating. But they are all uh, blurred, so, you know, very vague pictures of these things assembled together.
1: Were you making that art while you were living in Bangkok or were you still in, in Burma when you were making that back in 2010?
2: I moved to Bangkok in 2009, but I also went back for a couple of months, but then I moved again. So, yeah, so it was uh, after I, I moved to Bangkok.
1: Were those were those pieces? Did you, were you conscious that those pieces were were responding to that new landscape of like responding to that city, or were they were you just finding yourself continuing working on preoccupations you'd been already thinking about in Burma when you moved?
2: That also goes to how, I mean my experience living in Bangkok. So in 2009, the political atmosphere in Thailand is also quite intense because it was leading to uh, the, these protests. And I, I didn't consciously thought about it, but I mean, when I moved to Bangkok, I had a lot of time thinking, reflecting on my experience in, of my life in, in my country. So uh, I lived in Dan apartment, so it's, it's, it's not far from the city center, but uh, there were a lot of things going on in my area. You know, people are burning tires and everything uh, when these things uh, happened. So that was really intense. But, you know, coming from Myanmar, I also didn't find it quite strange or unusual at all. Yeah, I think a lot of my thinking in Bangkok I was taken up by the political issues, you know, related to my country, also Thailand.
1: I admit I'm a little I'm a little surprised. Perhaps this is just revealing my ignorance of, of both Thai and, and Burmese history, which my ignorance is uh, if not infinite is very impressive of those countries. But I, I guess I'm surprised when you say that you, you found it familiar or you weren't surprised by it, because my sense of Burma, you know, prior to 2010 for quite a while is that there had been that protests were not very common that it was that the that the government uh, didn't really allow
2: the the junta did not really allow protests. I think I I was just referring to uh, what I experienced as a child, you know, 1988 uh, uprisings in Myanmar. So I was eight uh, at the time, so tender age, and I was quite young. And I saw people dragging corpses in front of my eyes, and, you know, people protesting my ankles, you know, join protests, you know, and, you know, grazed by the bullets. So it was quite an intense experience, and it lived with me. It has lived with me.
1: Can you take us back to 1988 and tell us a little bit more about, about that time and what was, where those protests came from and what happened during them and how, how they resolved, and, and again,
2: just how your family experienced that? People had a lot of grievances towards the, the socialist government led by General Neowen. It took years until people... Came out, you know, with the anger, you know, the the disappointments, you know, uh, discontent, uh, and took to the streets. So by that time, it just exploded all over the country, you know, and the students were at the forefront. But uh, this is a history, but for me as a child, what I remembered, um, mostly the imagery, you know, the, the visceral experience of it. What I remember is that my father and my aunt, uh, uh, uncles listened to, you know, BBC or VOA and it was illegal. But I knew it was illegal, but they were talking about it, you know, they were, you know, hiding the, the radio, you know, and, and the blankets, we were living on rations of food, you know, and and my cousins were playing cards, and there was a time without law and order and, and people were you know protecting God in their own neighborhood. you know My father you know they took turn working as a night watchers, so and so my father you know would swear and spear, <laughs> walking in the street, and that kind of imagery you know' it's quite a and I was young, so I didn't know at the time how intense it was. I heard at night time the the sound of bullets in the street, but then I realized that it was really, really huge it was it is a scar on the skin of the country.
1: I mean, obviously, that state of mm-hmm. that state of emergency did not remain. So, how did it? What, what happened? What? How did it? How did it break into the new order? How, whatever one might uh, think it, of that order.
2: Yeah. It didn't end well uh, because in and with the coup, you know, with the the, the new military setup, and and that will go on for another twenty years, right? So so it was so it wasn't what people wanted; it was just the new chapter of uh, new kinds of oppression you know and poets writers, everybody was censored, a lot of people fled, they went into exile, you know a lot of and a lot of people went into jungle students, and schools were closed, and we had i mean that that was um <clears throat> Obviously, a very difficult time.
1: Could you maybe just go back a little bit to just your, your family and your upbringing? Could you just say a little bit about
2: your, about your family and where you grew up? I was born and raised in Yangon on, on the suburb here. It's called North Oklapa. is because it's situated in the northern part of uh, the, the city. My father is a teacher. Now he's retired. And my mother, she does some small business. And I, had a, I have a, a, a kid sister. So my family background, I am Indian Burmese. And from what my grandmother told me, we migrated into Myanmar in the 11th century. So it's been a long time and uh, we've been totally assimilated into Burmese culture. Now we don't even speak the language. But we are more Burmese than Indian. Our neighborhood, it was just uh, a typical Burmese Suburbia. There would be some middle-class people living in, 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 at the centre, uh, surrounded by you know, slums, dwellers, and and also you know people doing hands-on things. You know, um, you know, random jobs. You know, like that kind of yeah, that kind of place so there will be a wet market you know small schools and some section of it would be occupied by some people with a little bit money and, uh, st- uh, and 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 employment stability
1: that's amazing that you can trace your family back to the 11th century at least part of your family back to uh, to that migration burma is a very ethnically diverse uh, country and that there remain a lot of uh, a lot of conflict particularly in the north sort of armed conflict that that has to do with some of the the way that the different ethnic groups have been treated by the, the, the government. But can you just help us understand a little bit about, like, does the government, does did the Hunza sort of want everybody to identify as Burmese, or is it more common to identify by your your, your ethnic group?
2: Burmeseness, to me, is a narrative, a meta-narrative, if you like, and an oppressive one, which is imposed upon a session of people, a population in the country, Since the old days, I mean, the the old dynasties and and the the governments, especially the military regimes, they have this strong idea about nationalism and then using it for political interest. At the same time, undermining the existence, the autonomy and the the right to identity of other ethnic groups, you know, I mean, of course, that also has led to uh, ethnic conflicts, right? And uh, they are still talking about it, you know, it's still on the table. And it is very obvious that we have had the propagation of romanization in our school tests, you know, the way we live and speak in, you know, um, everyday life. So I think it's only fair to say that a lot of people are due justice, you know, and a lot of people have been abused, you know. For instance, you know, I mean, I, I, I've been working with also Kitchen Friends, and I want to... Uh, Nisong area, the confluence of Ayari uh, River. On one side of the river, there was a, a, a temple, a, a Buddhist temple. You know, uh, shining bright in the sun, the bells chiming. But the whole neighborhood uh, occupied by Christian population for years, for for generations. The Burmese military has. Always wanted to show their presence, their their dominance. You know, and this is not good. But I I, I hope you know uh, things get better and you know people uh, find ways to sort it out. But definitely, there are a lot of people who have still grievances. You know, I, including me and you know who has uh, have had their identities taken away by, from them. When you were living in
1: Thailand, did, did you get any sense that that Thailand struggles obviously in a different way, but struggles with a similar question of dominant narratives and populations that have been subsumed within the kingdom did you notice did you notice
2: or experience that at all when you were there i would say i have very little knowledge on that but the, the governing system has accomplished you know uh, assimilating all these different you know the diversities into one thing and a one narrative. But you know, Thailand has a lot of ethnic cities, ethnic groups, you know, hill tribes, and for even Isan, you take them, you, they, they have their significant features, very unique in the way they live, you know, and make their living. But I, I also noticed that there has been a lot of uh, discrimination against these small, you know, uh, a, a minority groups in Thailand as well. Even at school, you know, I've been told by my Isan friends that how they feel inferior you know, when they're in Bangkok, how they're, they're swallowed up. I know that, that that Thailand and Burma
1: have a very complex history with each other, <laughs> to say the least. But they also have a very complicated present. And I'm just curious what your experience was as a Burmese citizen
2: living and working in Thailand. I've been treated a bit, say, badly uh, by by Thai police, for instance, because of uh, my nationality, because I'm Burmese. At one point, I was probably in taxi with my then-girlfriend, who is a Westerner. So we were stopped by in the Thai police, and uh, it was a li- little bit late, in, and uh, he looked at me, and he wanted to see my passport. My passport at the time was at a uh, Cambodian embassy, because I was applying for visa, but I had a copy, so I showed the copy, and he wasn't satisfied, and I um, told where I worked, you know, I, I told him I could call somebody to talk to him, and he wasn't happy either, so he was... But, in a way that he was talking to me very harshly, I felt. And my girlfriend also pleaded, you know, because we were not doing any harm. And then he finally let me go. But I asked him a question, why he was questioning me and why he was, you know, uh, talking to me like that, why there was another person traveling with me. And he looked at me and said, because I'm Burmese. (laughs) So, but, you know, I have a lot of Thai friends. Especially young generation time, people are quite open-minded. I would say I've worked with a lot of times, you know, artists, poets, you know, and also, you know, within civil society. So maybe some parts of the system, society, especially maybe in relation to the government and also industry, you know, like fishing industry, etc., where maybe some people might have to be exploited, you know, some because you know that way the system works, not necessarily in a good way.
1: All right, let's get back to talking about poetry. (laughs) Do you remember your earliest exposure to poems?
2: I feel like I have already known poetry in all my life. When I was young, I had a keen interest in uh, romantic poets. I love the language, I mean, English, and I think I have a knack for it when I was young. So I was copying these romantic poems, you know, and mimicking the rhymes, and I I was just, you know, writing, rewriting all these things. So it was quite a fun experiment for me when I was young. And of course, my one of my uncles read a lot, and he had a lot of books, you know, poetry. And my father likes to do calligraphy, you know, but he didn't paint, but he also did some sketches. So there is this in the family, uh, you know, artistic side going on. One good thing about our school system is we have poetry, but the bad thing is that teachers never teach us poetry so there is this part of the curriculum it would be just left out but for me i took time reading that because i enjoy reading that but not until later i started to write poetry because i started writing uh, when i was 19 or or 18 but of course i i feel I'm, i feel very natural about writing poetry it sounds like your first exposure to poetry was
1: through was through english language poetry i mean were you were you also getting burmese language poems or, or stories when you were young as well, or?
2: There are a lot of Bami songs that I like, and you know, they can be quite poetic as well, and also a lot of poems that I read as a child. Not until later I was exposed to Morani's poetry, so it was uh, more traditional poems written in, with you know, specific rhyme schemes that I read as a child. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, about the history of Burmese poetry? Uh, sort
1: of give us, a, give me a sense of like in Thailand, for example, uh, coming out of the Ayutthaya period there, and then through the the early the early courts of the of the Chakri kings, um, there was very much a, a dominant established sort of court poetry that was sort of the established, you know, Siamese and then Thai poetry, and then obviously there there were folk there were there were also folk traditions um, outside of that system. Um, and all, both of those are still in play in Thailand. It, was there a similar dynamic in, in Burma? I mean, when you, when you say you had, we were exposed to Burmese songs and Burmese poems, were, were, were those more from a folk tradition? Were they more from an established sort of long history of a certain kind of Burmese poetry? Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Similar in some parts, I would say. Burmese poetry, if, if we look at it, it has always been there and in history and, and Burmese poets were involved, you know, in, in the in the fight for freedom, you know, from you know during British rule. So that were these poetry very political, reactionary, you know, and that was the vanguard, you know, and poetry. And that was quite also written very traditionally. And then then we had Kisan, literal translation would be testing the times that, that's a bit more going towards romanticism and, you know, they, they started to bring in more uh, exciting experiments with the language and the rhymes and the meter. So, but then that's after, that's in the post-colonial setting, but still that's political problems and the, still politics and poetry, you know, we're going together hand in hand. And then, you know, the, when we talk about Burmese poetry, we, we talked about the, the, the university, you know the campus and the campus poets and you know that university was, has been all the way, uh, Mecca you know hosting all these um, uh, artistic movements as well as political movements you know, led by students and I think the turning point was the 70s that when we had Kipo uh, which is uh, the modernist face of Burmese poetry so then poets became more critical and n- they start to also keep distance from uh, the the, the int- internal politics, you know. Meaning, they are not party men anymore. You know, they are more poets looking at the society. You know, they have their own role now. You know, they are not politicians. Then, uh, writing also has become quite in, you know involved, you know, and quite engaged and um, exciting. Also, thanks to some uh, translations of Western poets, you know, uh, especially S- Sia Utano, who translated a lot of modernist poets. So the kippa was, I think, the breakaway from the the traditional uh, styles of writing too. And then in 2000, or late 2000s, or 2005, around that time, we started to see more movements coming out. You know, avant-garde movements in you know, poetry. People become quite experimental. And now today, we have this very active uh, contemporary poetry scene in Yangon. A lot of young people, you know, are, are writing. Exciting poems today, but we have to also acknowledge that still a large section of poets are still also very politically, socially engaged. So you know, that I think you cannot really tear these two apart. So you said that your the the second phase of your
1: of your life with poetry started when you were eighteen or nineteen. What was it, what was it that got you starting to to read more poetry or or write more poetry was there
2: somebody that you knew that introduced you to something or was there a book that you came across uh, I have friends at the time we we share books I was also reading a lot of you know fiction nonfiction that kind of books you know um, and also poetry was you know definitely there of course there were a few poets like uh, Montchonway you know Paul Wei uh, An chain you know whose poems I really liked and they have definitely a great influence on me on my writing but I wasn't, you know, totally committed to writing poetry, though, because I was really, really busy with learning English, you know. I mean, I, I taught myself English, you know. Probably that's why it's not that good. I read a lot of books in English, so, you know, uh, learning that way, seeing a lot of movies, and, you know, I like to talk with friends. You know, I, I, we, we practice English, you know, and at tea shops. So what helped me for my Language study was uh, mostly fiction, you know, Hemingway, you know, uh, John Steinbeck, you know, and a lot of American writers, also English writers. But then I became involved in the literary scene accidentally because uh, upon graduating from university, I wanted to do something related to literature. And I I was already translating some short stories into Burmese, and I was already publishing some magazines. A few poems then, but I wasn't still not very committed to it. But then I was employed by a weekly journal. Then, you know, I uh, met more poets, and I became quite fascinated by it, by what I read. Then I also was, I was meeting some people like Zayalian, who was, you know, m- you know, writing exciting stuff, but, you know, not established at the time. So I thought, oh, this is the, the thing I like. So I I just went for it. Since then, I've been writing consistently. You know, uh, putting out books.
1: Was it very difficult to find either any books of poems or certain kinds of books of poems at that time in Burma under the under the military rule?
2: Yes, and no. Uh, yes, because there was censorship. And you know, it, when you turn magazine pages, you would see the whole poem or when section of poems you know painted but with some ink or you know silver paint or something like that that's you know at the time the censors the were well, that way you know they had this bottle of ink or whatever you know next to them
1: wait so the censors were actually f- going through things that were, had already been printed and were then censoring them after yes yes so what were the, what sorts of things would be getting covered in silver paint like what sort of what was what was forbidden? What was forbidden at that time?
2: Anything the government deemed subversive or a challenge to the authority. Of course, they they were looking at uh, certain poets. I think they had targets. You know, they had the list of people in mind. You know, whatever they you know these people wrote, they you know uh, looked closely, and then you know censored them. So especially political stuff that they you know. But poetry, which is quite. Difficult to censor to me, you know, I mean, because poems are multi referential, you know, and but you know, they, they had a long list of words to you know, the censor. For example, for instance, you cannot you cannot write star, you cannot star because that might mean, you know, communism or you know, you know, that might have some uh, political affiliation, you know. So you, c- you couldn't use the word star in no, a poem, no. no, not the time, and you can you cannot use the word red. And you cannot use the word she. I mean, in certain contexts, they, they, they didn't allow you to use the word she because that they thought referred to Osan Tsuchi. So they have this list of words, you know. So a lot of poems, no wonder, I mean, were censored. And so it's difficult to get hold of great stuff because, you know, poets are losing their great stuff. But there were books. When you
1: started becoming much more knowledgeable about, about poetry and started Learning the names of poets that sounded interesting, or encountering one poem by somebody that was interesting, was it very difficult to find more of their work?
2: There were used bookshops where the, you might come across some poetry books, you know, John Keats. But of course, the you know we didn't have bookshops selling you know English books. But you could go to embassies, you know, like British consuls you know, and then U.S. you know U.S. embassies. So I, I went to British consul in, in the beginning. You know, and then I read T.S. Eliot, you know, Ezra Pound. And, and then I also, later on, I went to American Embassy where I started to read like John Ashbury and, you know, exciting stuff. So, sorry. So John Ashbury was
1: in the the, Emb- the Embassy Library?
2: His books were there have, been all, have always been there. Surprising, of course. Who else was in the American Library that, w- that was sort of surprising to find there? I remember, apart from John Ashbury, I remember reading Frank O'Hara. Maxine kumin C- C- and sylvia plath but yeah of course there were uh, some other poets especially from new york school and the black mountains so i yeah, definitely uh, charles olson worked what was, was there yeah
1: at a time when when i feel pretty negative about a lot of american things it's good to know that for that occasionally america was doing some good work by putting uh, Frank
2: O'Hara in the, li- in the Burma, in the Burma embassy library. <laughs> <laughs> yes. one, one good thing about the, the American, I mean, library at the American embassy is that uh, you could also request books, you know, for, for, for instance, and you know, I, I, you know, I also work as a translator for their periodicals, you know, I just met this guy from the embassy and we talked and I was translating books. So, you know, it was a nice experience. I also translated commission by them, uh, wonderful wizard of Oz. So it was a great experience. Later on I started seeing that just American work. So I told them, why not Japanese novels? Strangely enough, they they ordered them for us. <laughs> so it was a really really nice experience. So can you say a little bit about your decision to to
1: come to Bangkok and and how that how that happened?
2: I was editing magazines one after another in Yangon in um Early 2000s, I was contributing poetry and my translations to local magazines too. So uh, essentially, I was a writer, a translator, a poet. Then uh, we had a huge natural disaster, uh, Cyclone Nakis. Then I had a chance to visit the Delta where the disaster took place, and I had never seen that amount of corpses lying around floating. So I came back home and I couldn't sleep. I felt you know, I had to do something that might have direct impact on people's lives, you know, in a positive way. I was actually depressed because, you know, life... Then I realized, you know, somebody... what What's his name? The, the French theorist. He said, uh, writing poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. You know, I, I just forget his name. But, I mean, I, I'm not going to compare whatever I, I was experiencing to Auschwitz or, you know, Holocaust. That's not comparable but some, I would say a uh, somewhat similar feeling I had at that time because, you know, a lot of people were dying and I didn't feel like writing poetry. I didn't feel like, you know, reading fiction and, you know, saying, oh, this is a great work. So, you know, I talked to uh, an editor, Kota, you know, who had who has always been very supportive. He he also runs a publishing house. I told him I wanted to do something, you know, and be involved socially. He said he he knew a Thai NGO who, were, who was working inside the country, you know, giving humanitarian aid to the area. You know, at that time, you know, it was quite sensitive, you know, working with international organizations, you know, even conducting trainees in Myanmar. So somehow we were quite low profile. You know, then I, yeah, then they, they hired me. I mean, I was volunteering for six months. Yeah, good day, bad days, because there was a lot of sadness and, you know, what was going on. But afterwards, I felt close to these people, I feel comfortable to to be socially engaged is it has never been easy I and mean, we enter the military hunter uh, to work with people, you know, because you could be, you know, in prison or, you know, any moment. So then, you know, under the cover of, you know, humanitarian work, you know, community development, we could also engage people, organize people to be more politically well, you know, socially well, environmentally well, and to also question the government, you know, not necessarily to come up with a revolution or anything, but it's more like, you know, gradual process of transformation, you know, through awareness raising.
1: Wow, this is like amazing work.
2: So they offered me to work in Thailand, then I met my girlfriend, who was also working for the same organization, so I moved with her and started working in Thailand. You
1: said that, that after witnessing that initially and then coming back and, and not wanting to just read novels or, or feeling the futility of, of writing poetry, I'm just curious how you found your way back into writing poetry.
2: In 2008, then the cyclone uh, happened. So then, you know, I didn't write for a while. But when I moved to Thailand in 2009, I started to have time and you know, time to think and also read and, and I wanted to write it again. I, the poet appetite came back to me. But then I thought I would just write more in, in English too, you know, when I was... So then 2012 I had a collection, new collection. Then almost every year I had a new collection coming out. And with English poetry, I, I have always been interested in the language and, you know, in writing in English. And yeah, so reading more of English poems also uh, inspired me to write. And I started to also start, you know, a brief correspondence with some American poets like Bob Perriman and also a critic like a Majority Paloff. They encouraged me, you know, they gave me comments on my poems. I thought it was really nice because, you know, um, but of course I, I want to write in English and I've been trying to, do so it's been very difficult. It's, it's a daunting task to write in English. What was it? What was it like being a,
1: a being a poet in Bangkok? Well, to, to shout out the name of our podcast here, yeah. What was that like being being a, a Burmese poet in Bangkok? Did you find it a very uh, was it a very solitary experience? Did you make many connections with 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 Thai with Thai poets? What was that like? What was that like for you?
2: It was very solitary, and you know uh, the only Thai poet I knew was uh, Zakaria uh, Amatya. I met him because, I mean, he was staying uh, at our RP's office and, you know, he was friends with a lot of our colleagues and we sometimes talked about But, you know, I was busy. I also didn't have that much, you know, uh, often interactions with him. And other Thai poets, I'm not sure I knew many of them. And also, there are a lot of Burmese migrants. I, d- I, I, I didn't know who were writing, you know, poetry in Thailand, you know, among these migrants. But then we have social media, so I was... In touch with Burmese poets back home. So, you know, there were some uh, interactions with them. But still, you know, I'm experiencing everything on my own. You know, I'm my own microcosm, you know, I'm my own universe, you know, writing things alone, you know, reading to myself. But, you know, I also liked it because it gave me an opportunity to be with myself a lot. A lot of time, you know, to read and write, reflect, you know, analyze, you know, and reinvent things. So maybe less social interactions, but uh, a lot more focus on my writing. So you you left Bangkok about a, about a year ago now. I think. Uh, can you say a little bit about about why you why you decided to leave? So I lived in Bangkok for like seven and a half years, and and I was thinking like in 2014 what i would do next i was a bit tired of uh, also getting involved in social work i would still like to do it i'm still doing it but i also like to do something else you know i because i started to get enthusiastic about art you know i had my solo exhibition in bangkok in, in 2011 and i wanted to also uh share my time for that you know for writing and making art so i was thinking would i go full time artist or you know what would i do then i received a scholarship for a master program in international development studies at chulalongkorn university i was uh, persuaded by that you know i i, I thought it is a great program and i Okay, I will go for that because I've always wanted to do you know uh, my master's studies in development. So I went to school, and then after that I feel okay. I should go back home because you know i I have graduated and what would I do with that you know and maybe I could offer one or two things you know in uh, you know in my country if I it, if I go back home and work for or uh, work with some local NGOs. So so then I decided to go back. Then I also. Knew that a lot of things have changed in the in my country, and you know the the new policy scene is quite exciting, and you know maybe I can be you know involved in in my country, and I think uh, I made the right decision. You made the wrong decision in terms of making me happy. You think that you were no
1: longer in Bangkok, we no longer get to hang out. But I'm glad for you that you made that you made that decision. How has the how has Burma changed in tangible ways for
2: for you or f- other friends in the in the writing and art community? Since the election, I mean, there are good vibes in the country. Uh, people have become more happy because, you know, you know, people are happy when they feel a sense of hope. You know, even the hope might be quite, uh, you know, elusive. You know, that, that still works with people because people need that kind of motivation. And I think they got the right leader to give that kind of uh, feeling in the country. And since she has been lifted, so, you know, a lot of poets, writers, you know, media, everybody's happy about it, and including myself. So, um, I'll yeah, so that's, I think, tangible change because, you know, we are writing more openly, you know, and I've seen young poets, you know, uh, dealing with, you know, these uh, genre issues, you know, writing, you know, I would say explicit stuff, but, you know, not necessarily in a, uh obscene way but it's more provocative you know uh, way so then they don't need to be worried that somebody might come and you know pick you up you know take you to the to the jail or anything so that's some kind that's i think one tangible uh outcome and there are also other yeah things like the government is engaging with the, the ethnic groups and of course there are also a lot issues not necessarily new ones but you know um uh, legacy of the military regimes, you know, that we had in the past decades. And the government is faced with uh, the shortage of resources, knowledge, and experience. So I think it's new chapter for everyone, including the people, the government, everybody.
1: I admit that it's difficult to me to imagine such a, such a massive change in the sense of what you are permitted to write. Right or what you're permitted to publish, and just that must be such a. It just, it just in my mind, it's just such a fascinating shift from sort of knowing that these. Again, it's not that the thoughts weren't there, not that the impulses weren't there, but then all of a sudden these poems can exist in the world. You know, I'm just imagining all of the the poems that are just star, 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 red, she, star, red, red, star, she, she, red, star. But that's just that's just amazing to me. I mean, it just that just must be such an exciting moment and also just such a sort of a, a mysterious and sort of uncertain you know like what are the poems that are going to be written i'm obviously just looking at that as a particular issue that just must be so interesting to to watch
2: yes uh i agree i mean we being now organizing events poetry events and we are also dreaming of an international poetry festival that might happen so so it's quite dynamic today you know the burmese poetry scene of course, we see how to be critical, you know, as poets, writers, or citizen, or you know, so, uh, NGO worker, whoever, you know, and sometimes governments are just governments, you know. They, it's it's about interest, right? I mean, people have their own interest, and government has their own interest. So it's about checking all these interests, and you know, we uh, to find some common ground. So, but it's going to be very difficult to achieve it. So I think we're excited about everything, about the every changes, but we still have to be critical. We still have to be alert, you know, and, and be prepared and, you know,
1: contribute. We're here, we're doing this interview in Hanoi, in this school coffee shop in Hanoi. Uh, what's, it, what's it like for you visiting Hanoi? I'm just, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm asking that in a sort of a, a selfish context in that I'm very conscious of, of myself visiting uh, Vietnam as an American, right, and... Um, there's a there's a very charged, <laughs> very charged history for, for for that I think I'm I'm I carry around with me here. Uh, I'm just curious for you. Do you do you find do you have any sort of personal history with with Vietnam? Do you have sort of ideas about Vietnam that you find yourself thinking about or confronting as you're here, or is it just a a cool, interesting, interesting city that where you just really need to make sure you don't get hit by a moped?
2: For me, it's all about imagery. You know, for me, the way I remember Bangkok, you know. I mean, I'm when I talk about imagery, the, or the image, it's the intrinsic ones, you know, that, you know, it's like, for me, I don't know, people who know uh, Photoshop would know it, you know, so, so when you put two layers, and then once you reduce, you know, the opacity of the first layer, you know, something, Anthony comes out, you know, then they are still, you know, merged, so for me, something like that, you know, when I, Remember a place? There's specific imagery that that's associated attached to it, which of course are created by the way I perceive it. You know, so for me, I'm really enjoying the atmosphere here and strong sense of imagery. I would say.
1: I'm <laughs> I'm curious just as you as you've walked around a little bit. I mean, other than the you know the ubiquitous. Martian flowers that are growing all over the cathedral and growing all over everything and that we have to sort of avoid as we walk around but that's everywhere that's in Yangon, that's in Bangkok just what other images, what other layers are you finding yourself, I don't know absorbing uh, into your resonant chamber of echoes in your head I mean what what sort of things do you see that really strike you in that sort of imagistic way
2: You know now I'm looking at you, your bear you know your glasses, your irons then I will be seeing flowers and you know I'm I would. I'm imagining people you know they having a head of flowers, you know, a, a, instead of head of hands, you know. So, so they are flowers. So, flowers. So it's a ball of flowers, you know, in shape of a head, a human head. So when you look at a person, you are look at, you are looking at very small details, you know, petals, you know, and the and you know, and everybody has like dozens of flowers on their head, and I think that's quite scintillating and that's that's really really beautiful i think so your, your big takeaway from hanoi is going to be just imagining my head
1: as a as a collection of flowers as a, as a beautiful bouquet well i look forward to reading that poem <laughs> um what do you what do you actively miss about bangkok what do, what do you what do you as you uh as you sit with your 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 wife your new wife congratulations on yes. your marriage what do you, what do you
2: what do you miss about bangkok i miss places specific places that i have had strong attachment to for instance a happy monday you know a bar a small bar you know on uh, mine. So you know, I like music, especially the 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 eighties music from England. So you know, I used to go there a lot. You know, still today, whenever I go to Thailand, I would just go to Happy Monday and I would listen to you know this, the Smiths, you know, the Cure, you know, uh, you know, Roxy music and that stuff, whatever you know, crazy stuff he that the DJs plays. So so for me, I feel a little bit bad about it you know not being able to go there you know on a regular basis
1: well it just means that you need to open an 80s an 80s cafe in yangon yeah. that uh, that you can go to, to listen to your music that you can spend your own records you have you have a new collection in english out called gasoline and that that is poems that you wrote primarily in bangkok right
2: I think ninety percent of these poems were written in Bangkok. Yes,
1: but you're also working on some new on some new work. I would imagine
2: I have had a manuscript. I've I've sent it to my publisher, but it's in Burmese. Uh, thirty poems, three sessions, and I'm also looking to translate all these thirty poems into English. Then I'm hopefully I will find a, a publisher uh, in the UK or in the US to to have the bilingual published. Uh, you know, in coming. Couple of years. I'm going to England uh, in November uh, for a short residency, and uh, I will be reading. Uh, I will be also leading some workshops there. Then I would also talk to some people. You know, if who will be interested in that kind of thing. I'm really looking forward to be because I feel this is a great, gonna be a great collection. The thirty poems. Well. I can't wait to
1: see those new poems. I loved that was one of my, uh, and you know, just, we can get personal, you know, your, your friendship and knowing you in, in Bangkok was really, really important to me. And there are not very many poets, uh, in Bangkok that, uh, in general, but also not very many that I felt really, uh, in tune with. And I really, I always enjoyed our conversations and and miss those. And I just, you know, I've learned so much from your work also, the, uh, and it's just amazing to, to see the, uh the way that you play in that language that is your second language that you have such amazing control over and uh you know we're all every every poet is just banging around trying to make the make the words sound a little bit better but uh but that was that was really awesome so i can't wait to read those new poems um if people want to find your work online uh, just sort of find out more about you online where can they go
2: uh i've been published online i mean especially uh, poetry journals magazines online like kerniker and the all a shampoo, you know, and some websites. So if you Google me, uh, there will be some poems there, and uh, you can also see uh, my artworks and on on some websites. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mom Dave. Really appreciate it. Thank you too. And uh, I really enjoyed talking. I've just started. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can just keep
2: going.
0: So um, there was a lot of great things um, to think about in that interview. One of the things that stood out most to me was just the potential for literature to heal.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: And I I, I found that very fascinating, just this idea that um, through his work, he might be able to, I guess, shine light on the past. And when I say light, I mean, like, actually make brighter like to to hmm. potentially ease suffering to heal when when Monk talks about literature like how hard he had to to work to get <laughs> these books to get where he is it, it was it was actually it was no not actually it was very inspiring it was is it was very inspiring again it was one of those things that made me say okay like it is possible to be content through the work there's this opportunity to write things right, um, hmm. to to make things better through yeah. literature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that he was that something he he was talking about the story of him his experiences in Thailand as a Burmese yeah person. Yeah. So much of especially that story with him and the cop it reminded me so much of my own experience in America. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, just this week, there was an incident. Um, I woke up one morning to a video of a uh, a guy in uh, Greensboro getting arrested on his mom's front porch. And it reminded me of something that happened to me when I was younger. And I talk about this in the book Harbors of a time where I was detained in front of my house in front of my own house, um, really? by police. Yeah. So they put me in the ground, put me in handcuffs. And then they had my ID, um, my driver's license matched the, the address that I, w- this was happening in front of. Oh, like, um, and so it just, I guess it just again, reinforced And I've said this many yeah. times, many, many times on this podcast that like here, I am freer. Um, mm. And I guess as I continue on with this this experiment or this investigation to see if there's a potential to be happy mm. um, in Thailand, it seems like this will continue to be in the pro column. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that will continue right. to be one of the pros. Um, even with Vine's like tripping me up in the streets (laughs) um even with like even even when my heart breaks because a a kid is detained even when um a country refuses to acknowledge a massacre of its own children Mm. um I'm I have this this (laughs) this feeling of freedom yeah um and that's, that's something I gotta, yeah. I gotta deal with I guess
1: that's really intense and there's a lot you know we should just do a separate podcast on that <laughs> uh, I, I suppose still in this area how he was saying how he was talking about after the cyclone in 2008 when he went down and bore witness to to the devastation and all the the death and Uh, harm that befell the people um, in those affected areas and how Mm. that really catalyzed this need to engage and affect affect the real world outside his poems yeah and wanting as he said have a direct impact on people's lives how depressed that was the word he used How depressed he was after that. And he quoted Theodore Adorno, uh, and neither Mm. of us could find that name at the time, but then I remembered it later, who said that writing poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. I guess why I wanted to flag that is I think that some people might have that experience of witnessing something like that, either in person or reading about it, and have that feeling of wanting to do more not just uh, continue doing whatever you're doing whether it's writing or working some other job yeah but he actually he actually changed his life he actually totally shifted and got a job working with this tie NGO and that carried him on this amazing journey that took him to Thailand, and yeah. he continued to to do really great work, socially engaged work, uh, and uh, a great deal of environmentally engaged work that he didn't speak about at great length. Yeah. And he got a master's degree on critical social engagement. Um, awesome. And awesome. You know, and he's also continuing to write amazing poems in two languages. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's just so good. I love Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. I just, I really admire him. And, uh, mm. and I'm wicked sad that, that he left Bangkok, but uh, mm. I'm glad that he's uh, living a good life and doing the good work in Yangon. So I'm going to be flying back to Bangkok tomorrow with or without these uh alien transmission translations (laughs) in my possession but with a a visa I have a visa to enter Thailand but uh I suppose so did Joshua Wong but it was amazing to be here in Vietnam and to interview Mong Day. and I'm just sorry that Donald you couldn't be there drinking avocado smoothies with us as well we're gonna post some links to his work online, his poems and his visual artwork. And we're also going to, I think, put up a separate file of some recordings of his poems that I was also able to do. Uh, You'll be able to find links to all that stuff at uh, our website, poetinbangkok.com Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like all of these rambles about Mars and
0: poems Mars, poems, and sadness. (laughs) (laughs) That's us. That's the tagline.
1: If you like (laughs) Mars, poems, and sadness,
0: please. There's some hope in there. Let me. Let me. Now there's hope. There's hope. There's There's always hope.
1: But give us a very hopeful five-star review on iTunes. Yeah. There's hope. (laughs) It'll help us reach lots of sad sack new listeners.
0: (laughs) And if you like what we're doing here and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash Bangkok or follow the link from our website. And you can get yourself a t-shirt with me and Colin on Mars drawn by Kathy McLeod. And for a large donation, we'll bring you on to the show to talk I'm about right. art, film, Martian flora, <laughs> whales, whatever you want. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast and has written us about it supported us on Patreon. Thanks to those who have said nice things about us online. We appreciate it. Thanks to Anna and Pete for their continued support and to Isotope for the great sound editing software. Thanks to Martin Pavlinich and his band Reports for our music and thanks again to everyone at Academy and Paul Inouye at the Freeze Green Club tell your friends about us whether they are into poetry filmmaking uh, punk music dance or just quirky podcasts in this era of missions to mars and whether you live in bangkok or charlotte hong kong or mandalay
1: io or europa we hope you'll keep listening to what we get up to here on poet in bangkok later guys we'll see you next time thanks bye